Hello, listeners. Welcome to the 10x Growth Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Aarti Vijay Raghavan, a product leader, an avid reader, and a book lover. We have an exciting episode today, and we'll be discussing the book, Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter, with the author of the book, Ms. Radhika Dath. Radhika is an entrepreneur, a product leader, who's participated in five acquisitions, two of which are her own companies, which she founded. She advises organizations from high-tech startups to government agencies on building radical products that create a fundamental change. She's currently advisor on product thinking to the Monetary Authority of Singapore and serves on the board of independent publisher, Barrett Kohler. Radhika has built products in a wide range of industries, including broadcast, media, entertainment, television, telecom, advertising technology, government, and even wine. That's quite a list, Radhika. She's graduated from MIT and SB with an SB in Masters in Electrical Engineering, and she speaks nine languages. So that's quite impressive. So Radhika, to cook us off, what are the nine languages you speak actually? Uh, well, I speak uh, Hindi, Marathi, Tamil because I lived in India uh, and my mother tongue is Marathi. Uh, but then I uh, learned French while I was in India uh, and I practiced in South Africa. Um, and then I spoke, uh, learned to speak Spanish in South Africa. Not that it's spoken there, but I had a friend uh, from whom I picked it up. Uh, and then I speak Italian because my husband's Italian. And I learned Japanese at MIT. Uh, oh, and Afrikaans in, um, when I was in South Africa. Okay, that's nice. So if you were quite a quite a good linguist here. So, and and uh, so one uh, obviously, what prompted you to write the book? You have a great you know gig background. Looks like you've lived internationally as well. So you know how what what prompted you to write the book, and how have you been helping organizations with the radical product framework? Yeah, I'll share a little bit of the journey and what got me started, even on radical product thinking. Because radical product thinking came about before the book itself. So I realized that, you know, as I was building companies um, or as I was building products, that there were mistakes that I was making along the way. And I was learning from these mistakes. Uh, and I started calling these product diseases because it felt like this was the same set of patterns that I was observing, regardless of which industry, you know, in my bio, you were sharing how I worked in all these different industries, but it was also so many different roles. Um, and, you know, my roles ranged from project management to marketing, uh, strategy, even CEO. Um, and I kept seeing no matter kind of the size of company, the role or the industry that there were the same set of product diseases. And I'll give you an example. The first product disease I came across was hero syndrome, where, you know, I had started my company along with four other co-founders. And I call it hero syndrome because our idea, like our vision was revolutionizing wireless. And when you say revolutionizing wireless, you know, ask me now, what did it exactly mean? And I can't tell you, right? We didn't really know, but it was all about going big. It was being big and we got funding from venture capital, um, but without a focus on what is the problem we were solving? And that is what I mean by hero syndrome. So that's just one example, right? And so we learned from such diseases, but over time, what I realized is even as I was learning how to build pro better products through intuition, 
over time, I was starting to have to observe others make the same mistakes that I had made. Mm. And so it brought this very fundamental question of, you know, are we all doomed to just learning from these failures? Or is there a way that, you know, we can give people a, a very systematic guide that summarizes all the intuition and the hard learnings that I've had? So that was where the idea started out. And I worked with two ex-colleagues of mine who shared similar frustrations. And we created this radical product thinking framework and we put it out um, and people started finding it organically. And in fact, the first presentation, a conference where I was sharing radical product thinking, a woman came up, came up to us and she went like, wow, you guys created this. I found it and I've been talking about it and I shared it at another conference. And clearly, you know, there was a need for it. People were already using it. I felt like a, a little celebrity there. <laughs> and so then, you know, we decided, okay, there's a real need for it. And I started using this with organizations. And over time, people kept coming and saying, you know, do you have examples of this filled out? And that's where I realized that there was a need for the book. Yeah. No, there was a second reason that I wanted to write the book. And it was because, you know, when we look at examples um, of, you know, just products that are built, like famous examples. What media shares is typically examples from Silicon Valley. And I was honestly just really tired of that. As you mentioned, you know, I have an international background. I really wanted to share stories that we haven't heard. Stories from around the world of changing the world through these amazing products. And so my examples include ones from India, from Singapore. You know, we need examples of not just these stereotypes of visionaries like Elon Musk who build products, but stereotypes of diverse people who are building amazing products that change world, that change the world in ways that they specifically envisioned that inspired them. Yep. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And to, to quote from the book, I think what you talked about the legit pop-up story, I grew with that, grew up with that in India. And, uh, and uh, it it was really insightful in terms of what the what the founders went on to do and how did they achieve it. And uh, typically, the other thing is this echo chamber of Silicon Valley. I think we always go directly to tech products. So the diversity of products in terms of non-tech and the other kind of like government products, all of those things was very insightful for me to get from the book. Actually, that's that's bang on. Actually, so yeah, thank you for sharing that. And that's actually one of the key pillars of the radical product thinking philosophy, that your product isn't just software or a physical product. Like that's what we've come to, you know, define as product in our minds that it's a physical or a digital thing. And instead, you know, my journey has made me realize that anything can be your product if it's your mechanism to create change, that your product is your mechanism to create change. So which means that, you know, a government policy can be a product because it creates a certain change in the market. And so this policy is a product. You can have a UX for this product, which is how you interact with this policy. Perhaps it's a certain form that is required of the user to fill out. Um, but once you start thinking in this way, you know, government policy, your freelance job, uh, even parenting, activism, anything can become your product. But with the basic philosophy that this means first you have to envision the change that you want to bring to the to the world before you go decide what to go build. 
That's one. And the second is, this means you can systematically engineer the change, which means you systematically engineer what that product is. And it, it can include software, service. It, you can start to think more comprehensively about it. Yeah. But the, the very interesting thing was like, as you mentioned, your journey into defining radical product thinking, uh, I found this uh, very cute uh, chapter on this product diseases, right? So I know you mentioned hero syndrome already. Uh, so to all the Silicon Valley folks and the folks who are in the tech industry, I think one of the main things is pivotosis. So it's like, I, I've seen it in the startups, which I've worked in, in different industries. Uh, most of the justification is because of customer feedback or things like that. So what were, you know, any interesting anecdotes on pivotosis and maybe, you know, how you could avoid that in terms of, I've seen a lot of founders stray from their vision and try to uh, try to just make maybe become opportunistic or something. So some interesting anecdotes from your pivotosis analysis, actually. Yeah. So I'll share uh, about the disease pivotitis from my own experience. Mm -hmm. So we caught pivotitis when, you know, we uh, I was working in a startup. I was heading up marketing. And, you know, we started off trying to be the next visa of the world. But, you know, it turned out that to be the next visa, that's really hard. You have to acquire both consumers and you have to acquire merchants. Yeah. So we said, okay, you know what? We're going to become a solution for loyalty uh, solutions for merchants. So we started offering loyalty solutions for merchants, like where you go to the store and use a card, et cetera, right? But that turned out to be a really, really crowded market. So we said after about a month, you know what? No, we're going to become a credit solutions company for merchants. And the thing was, like, we pivoted, we pivoted so often that at the end of a month, literally, I didn't know what I was asking people to sign up for on our website anymore. And so, you know, when I talk about pivotitis, people then say, well, so does this mean we can never change? Uh, that our vision can never change? And no, that's not true, right? Your vision, in fact, should change. But here's the key difference in how you can avoid pivotitis. One of the things you can do is articulate for your team, what is the problem you're solving? Whose problem you're solving? Why must that problem be, be solved? What is the end state you envision? And how are you going to solve it? You know, what I've just described, the this who, what, why, how, and when, this is basically a radical vision. So you have to write a radical vision, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But when you write such a radical vision, the point is that your team has this clarity, and you might discover, especially if you're very early stage startup, that in the span of a month, the answers to some of these questions turn out to be wrong. And that's okay. Share with your team what you discovered about where you were wrong and what you're going to do instead, like what aspect you're going to test instead. And that's how you avoid pivotitis. The problem with pivotitis is when for your team, it feels like this irrational whiplash from one idea to the next, that today the customer says one thing and you do one thing, tomorrow the customer says another thing and you do another thing. From one sprint to, the, uh, to another, it feels like it's a pivot. Sometimes it's a pivot based on which customer is screaming the loudest and you have complete unpredictability. 
But instead, when you have this detailed vision, you've given people clarity on direction. You're telling them what was wrong and what you need to do instead and why. Now you'll be bringing people with you on the journey. And that's how you avoid pivotitis. So uh, I know as, as, as there are product managers who are in industries and stuff like that, uh, won't it become really prescriptive if your CEO or something is giving you a lot of inputs on what and why and all that stuff, then what is the thing which product uh, people in the product are getting into folks? Like, how do you balance between telling exactly this is what I want to do and building an experimentation culture in the company? Like, how do you advise that to leaders uh, when you are, you know, when you're actually going into companies? Oh, I love this question. So I think the key to this is as a CEO, you cannot own the product vision. You really cannot. You can set the company's vision in the same radical product thinking format, yes, and you then have to let go of that and let your product team say, okay, I understand the company vision, and now how am I going to translate this into my product vision? And especially, you know, when you have a, a product portfolio, you know, as the head of product, you cannot set the vision for every single one of those products. It's the same thing where you can provide that end-to-end vision for your product or end-to-end vision for the company in that same radical product thinking format, and then let every product team set their detailed vision for how is this going to be translated into their product. But let's say it's a small company, right? Like you only have one product, Maybe the CEO is the one who's defining, you know, the the who, what, why, when, and how for the single product. But then leave it to your product person to figure out the strategy, to translate, how does this vision translate into how do, what is the next set of actionable steps? Meaning, and maybe this is where I'll talk about the strategy in a moment, but the strategy is where the mnemonic RDCL strategy comes in. It's RDCL stands for, Uh, You pronounce it radical, but the mnemonic means R for real pain points. What's the pain that makes someone come to your product? This is where you define the persona and you define what is the pain, like the two to three pain points that each of these personas have. Then you say, what is the D or the design, which is the solution for each of these pain points. For every pain point, you should have a design, uh, a solution. And then you define the C, which is capabilities. You know, if you've defined the design or the solution, the functionality, the C for capabilities defines the underlying infrastructure or relationship, partnerships, et cetera, that you need to solve that problem or, or to deliver the solution, right? And then the last is L for logistics, which is what is the business model or what's the sales channel? How do you um, bring the solution to customers? Um, Is this a service? Is this um, a software? Um, How do you support it, train people? Uh, How will you market it, et cetera? You know, this is the kind of stuff that a product manager completely is never given any influence over. And a product manager is told, you know, we'll worry about all of this. You just go build a product. But that's like saying, you know, go build a house and you don't think about like who you're building this for, whether it's a two family, you know, a single family, it's, it's two families. You don't think about whether this family has kids or not. You know, you can't go build a house without knowing all of this, right? Like that's inherent to the design. And 
what the driveway looks like as a result. And so uh, this is the kind of stuff that we need to think about as a product manager. And so one of the key myths that you know, this desire for control comes from is this idea that a visionary is someone like an Elon Musk. He takes control. And let's, let's just face it, it's a he. It's he takes control of the whole thing. It's his vision. And everyone is in it only to follow him blindly, do whatever he says. And that's not what a good product is. And that's what, and that's not what a good leader is, right? You cannot build a good product this way. And that's why the examples that I share in the, in the book are unlike you know, what an Elon Musk does. And even when I talk about Elon Musk in the book and the example of a Tesla, you know, the Tesla engine wasn't built because he knew what to go do in this engine. Yes, he had a vision for Tesla, but the person who was, the the whole team who was building an engine had an idea of how to translate that vision into what it meant for the engine and put in the Hall effect into the engine that gave them 40% more performance. That's that's actually a great way of summarizing it. And I loved, uh, you know, that translates also directly into both leadership and, you know, the maturity of the leader required in order to build fundamentally changing products rather than just, you know, okay, I'm here to make a quick buck and go from there. And as you said, I think the best thing which I've seen is, you know, a lot of uh, books uh, talk about product uh, managers as being CEOs of the product. So I think your your framework of setting a vision for the company and using that vision and setting a vision for your product and understanding that that makes you the CEO. So you are you're kind of at least translating that larger vision of your business to your product vision and then owning the end to end of it. You're just not building the uh, the house without the driveway or the logistics of it. I think that is a very important point in terms of logistics, because uh, you know, in in the, you know, I I also seen that you know, change their business model as they as they uh, learn effective ways to deliver delight to their customers. I think you have a lot of examples on how do they do it based on the logistics of their customers. Like, where is their customer at so that we can deliver it effectively for them over there? So that that's a really good insight on that. Uh, one, know, yeah, go ahead. I would love to pick up on what you said uh, about the product person being the CEO for their product. On the one hand, you know, I like this analogy because it really is, you really have to be able to take ownership of your vision and strategy. Um, And, you know, very often I find that the product person is relying so much on customer feedback that they have no clear vision for their product. And they're they're just going kind of wherever the customer decides or, or shares that they should go. Um, and I feel like this is where it, to me, the analogy is more like, you know, think of yourself as the driver in your car. It, before you get into a fast car or before you start driving and asking someone for directions, you have to know where you're going and roughly how you're going to get there. And only then is it useful to drive fast and useful to ask for directions. That's one thing. But the second uh, thing about the CEO analogy, and this is where I feel like the role deviates a little bit from the CEO analogy, is where I feel like as a CEO, um, you know, you have a little bit more control in terms of being assertive and saying, you know, that this is where we're going, right? And even for a CEO, absolutely, in terms of leadership, you need buy-in and you can't, every time you do something without buy-in, you erode a little bit of that social capital that you have. 
And this is the thing that people don't realize, like this micromanagement that you do is not a good thing. If people succeed, it's despite that, not because of it. But as a product leader, it's especially uh, hard to take the CEO approach where you can be super assertive and say, this is what we're doing, because you have stakeholders who might say, no, this is not what we're doing. And so this whole thing of how do you get buy-in, but keeping ownership of vision and strategy. And that's one technique that I've had to develop over time, especially as a woman, because you can be assertive as a woman, but that's interpreted differently from when a man is super assertive. You know, if a woman is assertive, she's seen as being bossy. If a man is assertive, he's seen as being a good leader, right? And so uh, the, the technique that I've developed to overcome this is to take a facilitative approach and I go up to the board and I draw up an X and a Y axis when I'm talking about priorities and when I'm trying to get buy-in around why we should do something or shouldn't do something. So I drop an X and Y axis where the Y axis is, is this a good vision fit or not? And the X axis is, is this good for survival or not? And now I can drop a feature on one of those quadrants that come up. So if it's good for vision and, and also for survival, right? Well, that's an easy decision. Typically, they're not going to argue with me on it. And if it's bad for vision and survival, that's also something they're not going to argue with me. That's a danger zone. The harder quadrants is when it's good for the vision, but it's not helpful in the short term. So it's not bringing in revenues. Maybe I'm asking us to refactor code for three months. That's investing in the vision. And that's where, you know, it's really helpful to draw this up and say, look, Here's why it's a good vision fit, but it's not bringing in revenues, but why we need to invest in the vision. Because you know what, guys, we've not invested in the vision in a long time. And when we keep going like this, our product will deteriorate over time. And the opposite of this is when we take on vision debt, where it's good for survival, like maybe this is a custom feature that's going to bring in a big deal but it's bad for that long-term vision that we have for the product. And that means we're taking on vision debt. And I can show them how many times we've taken on vision debt in this last quarter. And if we keep doing this, guys, we're going to get obsessive sales disorder, which is a product disease that, again, kills our product. And so this is how we can bring people with us on the journey without like taking this super you know, uh, assertive, you have to be assertive, but it's this role where you're dictating what is done. And you can't do that with this role of a product leader and how you can get buy-in and bring people with you on the journey. I think that that's a really, uh, you know, very useful tip to the product managers. Uh, one is imagining yourself as a facilitator to keep your stakeholders, understand where, you know, how they are getting, building this vision that uh, I'm actually personally I'm going to start using that a lot in my uh, I think I've been doing that without knowing that I've been doing that you know product managers typically their role is to actually figure out how do you convince your stakeholder that yes this is really needed and you need to invest in it otherwise this is what is going to happen right so half our time is actually showcasing that inf inf uh, investment need and how it's going to translate over the long term actually. Thank you. That's, uh, I'll start using that and I'll give you feedback on how it's going, actually. Uh, there's uh, one thing which I really saw was this, uh, this uh, there's a statement in your book, actually, to make justice more accessible to people when you are building with tech law firms, right? 
uh, I want to, and, and I think you started off with your own company where you, you had that wireless vision saying you, you wanted to make wireless better. So how have you seen companies balance between grand and practical visions? Like, I don't know how uh, Musk or someone started the companies like saying, you know, I'm going to transform humanity and go from there. Or they had more practical visions, which which they could. So that balance is something very interesting, actually. So. Yeah, great question. And, you know, this example that you gave um, was there was someone I interviewed for the book and she was saying how you know, the vision for our company was making just democratizing justice so that it's available for all. And that made that vision sound so grand, right? And this is one of the traps that we fall into, that we think our vision has to sound inspiring and so motivating for everyone. And does it make you want to get out of the chair and do something, right? Yes, all of that sounds good, but here's the reality. This company, what they were actually doing, their product was being used by high-end law firms. So this was the di diametric opposite of di democratizing justice, right? This was like making justice easier for the, those people who can afford it. And specifically, it's the law firms who made lots of money from those people, right? And so... This is one of the problems with these grand vision statements. We have to unlearn some of those things we've learned about vision. Your vision doesn't have to sound artificially meaningful. So let me give you a counter example of a vision. Um, and this is in the radical product thinking format. And I've not told you anything about this company, but here's the vision statement and tell me how you perceive it, right? So today when amateur wine drinkers who don't know a lot about wine, but really want to learn about wine. When they want to find wines that they're likely to like and learn about wine, they have to find attractive looking wine labels um, and find wines that are on sale. This is unacceptable because this leads to so many disappointments and it's really hard to learn about wine in this way. Mm -hmm. We envision a world where Finding wines you like is as easy as finding movies you like on Netflix. We are bringing about this world through an algorithm that matches wines to your taste and uh, an operational setup that delivers these wines to your door. Now, the power of this vision, right, is that I told you nothing about the startup that I had in 2011, and I sold it in 2014. And, you know, yet... After listening to this vision, and by the way, every time I say this vision, it might I might change a few words here and there. It's not about memorizing this vision. It's about deeply knowing what we were doing and why we were doing it. But hopefully after listening to this, you had exactly this clear idea of what we were doing and why we were doing it without ever knowing anything about the startup of mine. Yep. Yeah. And, and therein lies the power of a radical vision statement, right? It creates this clarity and alignment on who we're targeting, why, why is that world unacceptable? It's not artificially big. It's not artificially, you know, sounding like I'm changing the world for everyone. It has clarity at every step. And I found that you don't need to make something sound artificially big, that what is inspiring for your team is a shared purpose, no matter how big or small it is, but it it gathers you together. It brings you together. And that's what makes a great team, right? That clarity. Yeah, I think uh, that that speaks to a couple of things which I really liked in that statement, right? 
uh, you know, as your team, uh, you understand the real pain points. So it's like you understand that, hey, there are like 80% of the people don't know anything about wine. So how are you going to cater to them? And even if they might not identify themselves in that, they might be the 20% people who know so much about wine. But even they will be uh, motivated enough to go solve the problem because they know, you know, wine is so good to make it accessible, it's useful. So I think that that is the main thing which I saw, the persona definition and how you're going to solve it, the end-to-end -end saying you're going to get it to your house. I think that also, right? So that gives me a clear understanding, like, I need to think about the delivery mechanism as well. What is the best way they can identify an order? All of this. Yeah, and, and to take that a little further, right? Like what you just described, I described the who with clarity in um, the vision statement. It wasn't just a consumer. It was an amateur wine drinker who doesn't know too much, but they want to learn, right? And then in the strategy is where, when I talk about the real pain points, right? The R, that's where I get into the next level of detail about the persona. And the way I define the persona in the R is I'll say, you know, if I think about wine knowledge on a scale of one to 10, where one is, I know absolutely nothing, but also have zero interest. 10 is like a winemaker level knowledge where I know all there is to know practically, right? We are targeting people from two to six because anything above a six, they're too pretentious and feel like I know so much about wine and algorithm can't help me. And so that's the level of detail that you get into at that next level in a strategy. And now I talk about what exactly makes a level two to six engage with my product? What's the pain that makes them come to me? To to this end, right? Uh, uh, there's one more uh, thing which I really like, like what do you call as digital pollution? So it's like when I read that chapter, uh, the way I felt it was like almost every growth team use thus almost all the tactics you mentioned and cause digital pollution, right? So have you seen companies who uh, do this well, like who who have a mission to say, hey, we're not here to just uh, create uh, digital pollution, but actually make it as a value add to the consumer. Like a lot of times, even when I'm making some product decisions, it's all based on, you know, how can I understand more about the consumer? What can I do to understand more about the consumer? And I think a lot of that leads to digital pollution because, you know, you create reactions, you create things like that to, to start digital pollution. What is your take on companies who do this well uh, and avoid creating digital pollution further in our lives? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing up this question of responsibility and how do we embrace responsibility when we build products? So just, I wanna elaborate a little bit more on digital pollution itself, because let's talk about what it is um, and our role as product people. You know, when I think about the role of a product person, I often feel like it's the role that's similar to a doctor. You know, a doctor looks at the patient and says, you know, I see that you have this problem. Here is a medicine to cure this problem. They don't then say, you know, what happens to you after this, after you take this medicine? Good luck, God bless, you know, it's not my responsibility. That's like the exact opposite of the Hippocratic Oath, right? And when we build products, we take a very similar approach. We say, you know, you, the consumer, I see you have this problem. You're sick and you have this problem. Therefore, I'm giving you my product as medicine. And now we can't then turn around and say, how you use this and what happens to you when you use it? Good luck, right? That is an abdication of responsibility. And we must take the Hippocratic Oath of product where we cannot do harm. Let's think about the harm that we do. Every time 
we create hooks in our product. What we're really doing is we're doing attention hijacking. Think of every product that tries to maximize grabbing your attention and it makes us, you know, it makes us, uh, it reduces the ability for us to absorb nuance in society. Think about social media. You know, it makes every person have to be so loud that it's hard to absorb a nuanced message. And we know what happens when there is no nuance. You can think about George Bush, who said, I don't do nuance. And that's how we attacked Iraq. <laughs> you know, what we need in society is nuance. When South Africa became a democratic country, it was because Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk gave such a nuanced message about recovering from apartheid, from, uh, you know, uh, reparations. We need nuance. That's just one example. But aside from um, this disease of, sorry, this, this form of pollution of hijacking attention, there's polarization, there's fueling inequality, um, eroding privacy, which is what we need for democracy. There are all these sorts of pollution that we create through our products. Now, you know, very often we think that, hey, if we build a product, you know, I have, you're, are you asking me to be a nonprofit and go altruistic to not create this digital pollution? And no, that's not the case. You just have to be thoughtful and think about how you're affecting society in every part of, you know, how you build your vision in every part of your strategy. You know, when I talked about RDCL, think about where you're creating digital pollution, how you're affecting marginalized communities, how you're hijacking attention in the solution that you build. You can think about the digital pollution you create in every step. And I'll give you one example of a company that is doing it well. And I'll give you an example that is not an altruistic company. It's absolutely for profit. And you know what? It's in the gaming industry, which is, you know, just about as uh, fervent as it gets in terms of grabbing consumers' attention. And the example that I want to give is that of Hello Games. They built the game No Man's Sky. Um, in 2016 is when it came out. And they got so much bad press because there was so much hype around this game. People were really disappointed. The vision around this game was creating this universe um, that you can explore planets and you can get in and you figure out all these different uh, places you can go explore. And it was supposed to be meditative. But you know what? There wasn't en enough interaction. People were bored. Um, it just wasn't working that well. But these um, founders of these companies and the whole team, they really stuck with it and they really built this out. And what is absolutely fascinating for me in No Man's Sky, and I've observed my son and my husband play this and they play this together. They see this as a bonding experience. You know, it's not something where, uh, where you're, where it's trying to extract dollars out of you in every gameplay. In fact, it is truly meditative uh, you know, instead of extracting dollars, they're starting everyone at the same level in terms of where you are, in terms of money, resources, etc. You build up all of this. You can't go buy more money. It's sort of giving everyone this level playing field, you know. And anytime people are collaborating, it there's no reason to compete with each other. There's no competition, really. It is this truly meditative feeling. And they've created this game that is truly for profit, but with this philosophy of creating this meditative exploration of this universe and being true to it. 
And in the end, in terms of results, they've been like one of the best-selling games for years in a row. Uh, and they've brought so much joy to the population doing this. Um, so there, that's our example. Uh, I encourage people to also read the book where I've shared other examples. Lijit Papad is one example where, you know, it's created change in the world. Yes, they've created profits um, and they've changed the world for so many people who work at the company. You don't have to be an altruistic nonprofit. You can be vision driven and think of how you're making money um, and your trade-offs don't have to always create digital pollution. Thank you. And I think one of the uh, very great insights I got from the way you described it is uh, actually having diversity of opinions in your product team really matters so that as you're building it, you really look at how will this affect different types of communities, different types of users, people from different backgrounds. I think that it also needs that you need different voices as you're building product, actually, both from your consumers, from your team, and also your stakeholders. Then you are going to uh, truly build an impactful product. I so agree. If you want to build a world that works for all, you need a team that is representative of a world uh, that, you know, that you want to build for. I'm going to check out that game. So use it as a bonding exercise with my boys because I'm the one who is actually... I don't know how to play games, so I'll start with this place where it is not competitive and see how it goes, actually. Uh, Brilliant. Yeah, thank you. And I love the Hippocratic Oath uh, in terms of, you know, I've seen it obviously in the medical field and I think uh, I messaged you as soon as I read it. It's like, you know, thank you. I never thought, uh, like, it shows as uh, new product managers who are entering the industry and also even experienced people, the responsibility they have saying, hey, you're not just building, it's not just a job, you're actually going to impact other people's life. And if you want to really build products which are going to bring change and impact others, then you should really take it with the responsibility. So uh, that is a really great segue. And uh, any other final thoughts and, you know, uh, in terms of how do you use this framework or anything, uh, what you want to give to the product uh, community itself? In terms of final thoughts, you know, we often justify a lot to ourselves. I watched the movie Oppenheimer recently. And, you know, we can practically justify anything we build, including the atom bomb, to ourselves and say why we had to build it, right? But the, the different reasons we sometimes use to build it is we say, well, if I don't do it, someone else will. Uh, another reason I hear is, well, uh, you know, this platform can do both good and bad. Um, and so I'm just building a platform. What determines whether it's used for good or bad is what the consumer does with it. And then, you know, one last thing that I hear is, well, um, I will build it, but it's the consumer who decides whether to use it or not. The consumer has choice. They can vote with their dollar. And to all of this, I feel like, you know, that is just selling ourselves on, um, on on not wanting to see how we're creating digital pollution. Don't think about like, well, you know, if I don't know it, someone else will. You choose what you're doing, right? And you are voting with your labor for the world that you want to create. Increasingly in a world where there are monopolies and consumer does not have a choice, 
the consumer cannot vote with their dollar. It's you who can vote with your labor for the world that you want to create. And so it's increasingly more important as a product person that you have the responsibility for the Hippocratic Oath and doing what is right if you want to vote for the world that you want to create. Thank you. Thanks. That's really insightful. And it was a great, uh, you know, great way to actually finish off with the consumer, with the product community, actually. Thank you so much. Thank you, Radhika. It was an amazing discussion for product and innovators. Uh, to close it out, Radhika, like, like listeners, if anyone who is passionate about product and the right way to build them to create everlasting impact, I suggest you read the book, Radical Product Thinking, uh, Radical Product Thinking by uh, Radhika and use the frameworks from the book. Great. Thank you. I also love to hear from people uh, who, have, who are using radical product thinking to create change. So please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and share how you're creating change. Um, big or small, it doesn't matter, but what inspired you? I also um, am happy for you to download the free Radical Product Thinking Toolkit from RadicalProduct.com. Um, and you can also reach out to me to ask me about corporate workshops and training. Um, and I help teams apply Radical Product Thinking for your product. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll definitely start using the vision debt framework, which you mentioned, and go from there and give you my feedback on how it goes. So the product community, as you can see, you know, please reach out to Radhika in terms of how you are going to use it and also how your companies can benefit from it. Until next time, this is your host, Arthi Vijayaraghavan with 10X Growth Strategies Podcast. It's been a pleasure having you, Radhika. Thank you. Thank you so much. So great to be here.